Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Psalm 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. For your love is ever before me, and I walk continually in your truth. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go about your altar, O Lord, proclaiming aloud your praise and telling of all your wonderful deeds. I love the house where you live, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. Do not take away my soul along with sinners, my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are wicked schemes, whose right hands are full of bribes. But I lead a blameless life. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My feet stand on level ground. In the great assembly, I will praise the Lord. And let me just pray for us again as we come to the Lord's word. Heavenly Father, please prepare us tonight to hear your word. We pray as we sang earlier that proud hearts and stubborn wills would be put to flight, the hungry fed, the humble lifted high. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Saul, the king of Israel, was clinging defiantly to the throne which God had promised to David. More than that, Saul was hunting David down to kill him because in his paranoia, he thought David was trying to steal the throne by killing him. But David was innocent. He was falsely accused. And it was never proved more dramatically than when Saul, hunting for David in the hills, entered a cave to relieve himself. Little known to him, David and his men were hiding a bit further back in that very same cave. Now, David's men urged him to go on, kill him. Take your chance. Take the throne for yourself. But David, trusting God to give him the throne, wouldn't lay a hand on Saul. So instead, he crept up behind him. Some of you know the story. With a knife, but not to stab him. Rather, to just cut off the corner of his robe. Let me read a little from 1 Samuel 24. We read there that when Saul had left the cave, David followed him. And he called out, My Lord the King! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord, on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut it off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are trying to kill me. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. And so appears the background to Psalm 26. David falsely accused, trusting God to judge and vindicate him. 
Zoom forward to Jesus, the descendant of David, standing before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, on false charges the night before he was crucified, being accused by phony witnesses colluding to have him killed, but remaining silent before them. Why? Because Jesus, falsely accused, was trusting God to judge and vindicate him. Zoom forward further still to today, where we who are Christians are routinely accused of evil or foolishness for trusting the Lord. Many in the media or elsewhere call those who hold to the teaching of the Bible fundamentalists, radicals, bigots, misogynists, homophobes. Many of us will have been called those things, perhaps in a, perhaps in a more coded way. And perhaps most painful is when those that we consider closest to us, those we love most, our family and our friends, think those sorts of things about us. But even if you haven't been called those things, I presume you don't need me to tell you that many in the world think those things about you, even if they don't say them to your face. I get most of uh, my news through the BBC News app on my phone. I just uh, flick through and see if any headlines grab me. And it is a rare day when there aren't multiple headlines on there that make it clear that the views that I hold, the biblical views that I hold as a Christian, are not acceptable in a modern society. A couple of months ago, when Tim Farron stood down as the leader of the Lib Dems, he said in his resignation speech, I seem to be the subject of suspicion because of what I believe and who my faith is in. We are kidding ourselves if we think we live in a tolerant liberal society. Whether it's in politics or the workplace or your family or school or uni or even it appears if you volunteer for the National Trust, the message is loud and clear. You may not believe those things. And under the pressure of a thousand moments, the temptation to shift our loyalties can be huge to adapt what we believe to appease the courtroom of the world. Christians today, like David and Jesus before us, stand falsely accused. And Psalm 26 is here to encourage us, to encourage us to stay loyal to the Lord, to trust him to judge and vindicate us, even though others accuse us of evil. Stay loyal to the Lord and trust the judge. We see from this psalm that David has one judge, one heart, and one hope. One judge, one heart, one hope. So let's look at those in turn. Firstly, one judge. Look down at verse one. Vindicate me, O Lord. Literally, verse one says, judge me, O Lord. David looks to the Lord to be his judge, not popular opinion. And he's confident the Lord will find him blameless for, verse one, I have led a blameless life. Now, when David says a blameless life, he can't be meaning uh, that he thinks he's lived without sin. If you look back at Psalm 25, which we looked at last week, you'll see verse seven, remember not the sins of my youth. Verse 11, forgive me though my iniquity is great. Rather, it's helpful to know that in Hebrew poetry, often the second half of a verse unpacks the first half. And that's what we have here. Have a look at the second half of verse one. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. That's what it means to live a blameless life. David's falsely accused. 
He hasn't been trying to take Saul's life. He's been trusting in the Lord. So the accusations leveled against him aren't true. The point of what David's saying is this. When you look at how he's lived, the mud they're throwing at him, it just doesn't stick. And so David says, verse two, test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. Just reflect on those words. Test, try, examine my heart and my mind. This is full disclosure from David. And what does does he know the Lord will find? Verse three, your love is ever before me and I walk continually in your truth. Your love, your truth. Those are what David's heart is full of. When he says your truth, he means it in the way that we say that a friend is true. When we say a friend is true, we're saying that friend is faithful. And so David is saying, look into my heart, Lord, and this is what you'll find. I've depended on your love and your faithfulness. So in short, verse one is saying, judge me because I've trusted you. And verses two and three are saying something similar. Test me because I've depended on you. What makes David's life blameless is his utter trust in and dependence on the Lord. David has looked to the Lord to lead him And now he looks to the Lord to judge him and vindicate him. He trusts the judge. I find that very refreshing to look at. David's not obsessed with receiving the approval of the world. He knows he has one judge who sees and knows all and who declares innocent those who trust in him and his love and faithfulness. There is about David in this psalm not a feverish neediness for affirmation but an even level confidence in the verdict of the one judge. I've known a man for a number of years who I get on with fairly well, and I don't like to say something negative about someone from the pulpit, but you'll understand why I'm doing it. I do get on with him fairly well, but he is, if I'm honest, a terrible narcissist. He is arrogant and proud. He lives as though the world revolves around him. If anyone disagrees with him, they're wrong. And he simply doesn't care what others think. It's not that he cares, but he tries to pretend he doesn't to save face. No, he really doesn't care. And so over the years, he's upset and offended a lot of people. He's a narcissist. Go to the very other end of the spectrum, and to paint a caricature, you have a schoolchild with a feverish need to be popular, who will say anything, wear anything, take anything, drink anything, do anything to receive people's approval. Now, both of those are obviously bad extremes. But David shows us the right way in this psalm. He shows us the way that, as Christians, we ought to be. He hears the criticisms and accusations of others, and he cares about them enough to appeal to the Lord to vindicate him. But he's not crushed by what others think. His confidence doesn't hang on the verdict of other people. He knows that they're not his judge that he has only one judge. He's neither narcissistic nor needy. There's a stability about David that comes through in this psalm, an evenness of temper that comes from knowing who his judge is. David knows he has one judge, and it's the Lord. Knowing that we have just this one judge lifts a tremendous burden from us. There'll be those 
here who have been living for a long time for the approval of others, whether it's your parents or a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend or peers or an employer or someone else, working very hard to earn those soothing words of affirmation. And your happiness is dependent on the verdict of those people. Others will be living here with a deep sadness because you'll have never received the approval of a particular person or people. I know of someone whose sister recently died and a great sadness of hers is that she felt that her sister never affirmed her or approved of her. And now that opportunity has gone. And for many of us here, we will feel in our day-to-day lives a sense of being continually on trial by the world. Constantly afraid of putting a foot wrong and being condemned. A passing comment, a Facebook post, a tweet, and bang, you're condemned for what you believe. And all of these, in all of these things, it is a great comfort to know, as David does, that we have one judge. And what does he look for? For those who trust him and depend on his love and faithfulness. And because David has one judge, he's able to have one heart, an undivided heart, a heart that is loyal to the Lord. These next few verses are all about where our loyalties lie. And David's loyalties lie not with those who reject the Lord, but with the Lord and his people. Have a look at verse four onwards. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. With them is not where David's loyalties lie, but rather, verse six, I wash my hands in innocence and go about your altar, O Lord, proclaiming aloud your praise and telling of all your wonderful deeds. I love the house where you live, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. It's really important that we understand what these verses are saying. So let me just say what they do mean and then what they don't mean. What they do mean is that we should have one heart with an undivided loyalty to the Lord. Look again at the language in verse four. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor do I consort with hypocrites. If you know Psalm 1, you'll realize that David is picking up on language from there. Psalm 1 begins, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. You see, those I sit with are those I ally myself with. Those I consort with are those I'm in the deepest harmony with. It's about whose voices you listen to who you look to for guidance and counsel, who you depend on. This is, in short, about where your loyalties lie. And so this is what these verses don't mean, that we shouldn't spend time with non-Christians. That is emphatically not what these verses mean. There can be no clearer evidence, no greater knockdown argument against that than to consider who Jesus spent his time with. In the Gospels, we read loads about Jesus spending his time with tax collectors and sinners. So much so that Jesus seriously raised the eyebrows of the Pharisees, the religious elite of the day. And they complained to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus didn't just spend time with those people. He was described as the friend of sinners. Was Jesus acting against the advice of Psalm 26? Not at all. In reply to the criticism of the Pharisees, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, he didn't come to consort with sinners in the sense of aligning himself with their attitude towards God, but to call them, to call them to live a new life. So I don't think we are, but let's never become the sort of church that disapproves of those who spend time with unbelievers. Jesus' loyalties were never divided. Neither were David's. Take a look at verse five. I abhor the assembly of evildoers. Now that's very strong language. It might make you feel a bit uncomfortable. But think of it like this. If you love someone, you will hate it when people speak against them. I love my wife. So if I overhear someone saying nasty things about her, it will make my skin crawl. If we love the Lord, opposition to him will make our skin crawl. So when I'm watching TV and Stephen Fry or someone else is telling lies about the God of the Bible, I can't yawn and be all ho-hum and switch the channel like it doesn't matter. It's wrong. Would I go for a drink with Stephen Fry? Yeah, I would. I might even buy him a drink. Who knows, he might get on really well and kind of be slapping each other on the back and exchange numbers and catch up every now and then. I'm dreaming a bit there, but we might get on really well. But this is what I wouldn't do. I wouldn't take counsel from him. I wouldn't look to him to tell me what to believe about the world. I wouldn't support him in the way he denounces the God I love. David loves the Lord, and so he can't bear the assemblies of those who oppose him, the places where they gather to plan and speak against the Lord. He can't bear that. David hates and disassociates himself from evil because he has one heart. For David, his delight, his heart, his home is in the place where the Lord is. That's where his loyalties lie. So verse six, he brings an offering to the Lord. Have a look down at verse six. I wash my hands in innocence and go about your altar, O Lord. Washing your hands like this is what someone would do according to the Old Testament law when they're approaching the altar in the temple to make a sacrifice to God. He continues, verse 7, to say that he goes about the altar proclaiming aloud your praise and telling of all your wonderful deeds. David here is giving what is called a thank offering. It's not required by the law, but it's something above and beyond what the law requires. Something done just as an act of love and worship. You see, rather than whispering wicked schemes in shadowy corners, David's proclaiming aloud to all the world the wonderful deeds of the Lord. He's speaking of the Lord's goodness and past faithfulness. There's no doubting where David's loyalties lie. Look at verse eight. I love the house where you live, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. He has one heart, it's undivided, and it's with the Lord and his people. There's an advert uh, from the 90s that I don't know, maybe you know, maybe you don't. Um, If you want to look it up when you get home, go on YouTube and just type Daddy and Chips. Um, It goes goes like this. There are two girls sitting on the bus, um, two young girls, they're sisters, and they're there in their school uniform on the way back from school sitting next to each other. And big sister says to little sister, Sophie, which do you prefer, Daddy or Chips? And... um, Then you see her through the rest of the afternoon just staring into space, considering that question. Daddy or chips? Daddy or chips? Daddy, that's my, that's Welsh. Um, If you're wondering, you probably didn't know. Uh, Daddy or chips? And uh, then at tea time, uh, daddy comes over to the girls and um, just nicks one of their chips. And Sophie just looks at her big sister and says, chips. Um, I think in our house, the conclusion would probably be the same. When push comes to shove, 
when we're forced to make a choice, where do our loyalties lie? With the Lord or with the world? If the Lord were to test and try and examine my heart and yours, what would he find, I wonder? Sometimes there will be moments where we're faced with very clear and blatant choices. Will I believe and follow the teaching of God in the Bible on this issue or that? Or will I bow before the pressure of the world? Where do your loyalties lie? Will I keep attending a church that believes that? Or will I go somewhere that raises fewer eyebrows? Where do your loyalties lie? Will I keep going with the Christian faith at all? Or will I throw in the towel? Where do your loyalties lie? But I think much more often we're faced with much subtler tests of our loyalty. Just this week, um, the gas man came round to our house and I was chatting with him about Christian things and what different people believe. And he concluded the conversation with this. He said, well, it's each to their own really, isn't it? It's each to their own. And he looks at me, waiting for, I guess, a nod or a smile or some sign of my agreement. Give it, and you've just agreed that everyone can be their own God and decide what's true. Don't. And there's an uneasy tension hanging in the air. Where do your loyalties lie? A friend tells you she's just got engaged to her girlfriend and says, isn't it great how people can get married to people of the same sex now? And she looks at you and she knows you're a Christian and what you probably believe. Where do your loyalties lie? It's not easy, is it? These verses aren't about who your friends are. They're about where your loyalties lie. It's about do you have a heart like David, one heart. A couple of my closest friends aren't believers and we get on like a house on fire. I love them. But when we catch up on Skype or FaceTime, we have a chat, we have a laugh. But there's always something that makes it clear that we don't quite see the world in the same way. That doesn't create unfriendliness between us, not at all. But we just know that we see things a bit differently. And they know that if they speak against the God of the Bible, which occasionally they do, they know whose side I'm going to be on. This is about in whose company you're supremely at home. With the Lord and his people? Or with those who reject the Lord? David says, verse 8, I love the house where you live, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. Today, God's glory doesn't dwell in a temple or any other building, but among his people by his spirit. I know that for some, coming to church can be difficult. If that's you, well done for being here. But for the Christian, there should at least be a sense when we gather together of having much in common, of being at home with each other, a a people who see the world in fundamentally the same way as we do. It is to the Lord and his people that we are to feel our deepest loyalty. It's clear in this psalm where David's loyalties lie. He has one heart, one judge, one heart. Finally, David has one hope. David has separated himself from the wicked in this life. Now he asks God to separate him from the wicked in the judgment. Look at verse 9. Do not take away my soul along with sinners, my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are wicked schemes, whose right hands are full of bribes. Instead, David's appeal to God is this, but I lead a blameless life. 
In verse one, David said, I have led a blameless life. Now he says, I lead and will continue to lead a blameless life. Blameless again, not because he's sinless, but because he continues to trust in and depend on the Lord. Look again at the second half of verse 11. Redeem me and be merciful to me. Before this one judge, even though he's had one heart, he knows he only has one hope the mercy of God. If you just read the opening two lines of this psalm, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have led a blameless life, you could think David's terribly confident in himself, think that God, thinks that God owes him his salvation. But as we read on, we see David's not a man confident that his own character will see him saved, but that God's character will. What does it mean to have led a blameless life? The second half of verse one, I have trusted in the Lord. Where does that leave us still? With only this hope, verse 11, be merciful to me. David's confident because he knows God's character is to have mercy on those who trust in and depend on him. It's why when we come together to take communion, as we did just here this morning, we say these words, we do not presume to come to this, your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. David knows that when he stands before this one judge, even though he has one heart, he only has one hope, the mercy of God. You see, if you trust in the Lord, verse one, and plead with him for mercy, verse 11, you can have the assurance that the one true judge will one day declare you not guilty. It's the assurance of verse 12. My feet stand on level ground, no chance of slipping. If the accusations thrown at David had left him wobbly, well, now he's standing firm. My feet stand on level ground. So Christian, trust the judge. When the world accuses you of being foolish or evil for following the Lord, know that you have only one judge. Trust him. When your loyalty to the Lord is tested by the voices of those who reject him, be a person of one heart. And when you face your own death, whether you see that coming from a long distance off or whether you only have moments to consider its unexpected arrival, think with confidence and peace of your one hope, the Lord Jesus and his death for you on the cross. If you're here this evening and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I hope your experience has been this evening that you are very welcome among us because you are but I hope you've also noticed that Christians view the world quite differently. We believe that there is a God, that we're answerable to to him, and that he will one day be our judge. But he's not the sort of judge who's itching to condemn. He's eager to acquit. When Jesus, God in flesh, willingly died on the cross, the hammer of God's judgment slammed down upon him, so that we could escape it. Escape it how? Simply by putting your trust in the Lord. There may be some here tonight who are feeling very acutely that they don't have one heart like David, that their hearts are divided and their loyalties unclear. And so you wonder, what verdict will the judge cast on me? Christian, the reason you can have confidence that you will not be taken away with sinners in the the judgment is that Jesus, though he lived an utterly blameless life, was 
He was crucified beside two criminals who knew they'd done wrong, but said of Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong, and indeed he hadn't. And if, like David, you trust in the Lord and depend on his love and faithfulness, Jesus carried your sin for you on the cross. And further still, he gave you his blameless record of perfect loyalty to the Lord. It is that record that the Lord, our one judge, will consider when he passes his verdict on you and me. Not your tatty record of divided loyalties. One song that you might have heard here at Easter goes like this. When I stand at the judgment, I have no other plan. I've placed my hope in a crucified man. Friends, when we come to the judgment, we have only one hope, but that's enough. Not guilty will ring out over those who trust and depend on him. So when, like David and Jesus, you stand accused by the world, remain loyal to the Lord and trust the judge. You stand on level ground if you do. And one day, you and I will join the great assembly of verse 12. And together we will praise the Lord and tell of all his wonderful deeds. Amen. You may see, uh, I may have noticed on your service sheet, uh, that the next thing it says is prayers, Chris Tufnell. Now, that's not a typo. Um, I was speaking to a, a couple of colleagues a few weeks back, and I said, we're doing all this preaching through the Psalms. Um, wouldn't it be a good idea for us to pray through the Psalms as well? So I landed myself with a job, didn't I? Um, and uh, now what we're going to do is um, I'm going to read through the Psalm line by line, uh, pausing after most lines, just to kind of add to that prayer. Um, and the thought behind this is uh, the Psalms have, uh, ever since they were written, been songs for the church. And songs are, are really just prayers put to music. And so they ha- the, the Psalms have, through the church's history, been used as the church's prayer book. And uh, I, for many years, didn't really pray the Psalms. Um, I, I'd never really done that or been taught how to do that. And it's possible that there are those here who have, have never really heard a Psalm prayed through in this way or have never used them. And it can be a very difficult kind of thing to start doing. So here's a bit, just an example of how you might pray through a Psalm. Um, if you would like to do that as kind of a summer project, get, getting into um, praying through the Psalms, uh, one book I'd really recommend is by Tim Keller. It's called uh, uh, My Rock, My Redeemer. I think. Um, you can get it on Amazon for a few quid. And uh, that has uh, every day a psalm um, or a bit of a psalm and it helps you to pray through it. That would be a great thing to do. Um, but um, now um, let's pray through this psalm together. You may like to have the psalm open in front of you so you can see kind of what I'm saying. Um, you don't have to, um, but that's an option. Let me pray. Vindicate me, O Lord. Heavenly Father, when we are falsely accused of evil or foolishness for trusting you, help us to remember that you are our one judge. Help us to trust you to judge us fairly and not seek to appease the world around us. For I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Help us to live in a way that you deem blameless because we trust firmly in you and your will for our lives. Help us, Lord, when we do waver in our trust of you. Help those of us here who might be in that situation even tonight. 
Please renew our trust in you and strengthen our resolve to live in obedience to you, even when others criticize us for it. Test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. Lord, you know us utterly, far better than we know ourselves. You know our hearts and our minds. Thank you that we can trust you as our judge to judge us fairly. For your love is ever before me. For us as a church family, please keep your love ever before us. Would we be a community of believers who are daily remembering and marveling at your great love for your people that has spanned the centuries? And I walk continually in your truth. Father, would we depend on your truth, your faithfulness to us, even if we're rejected by others? Fill our hearts and minds with your great love and faithfulness as we read and recall the great news of the gospel. Would we be a gospel-soaked church, continually living in it? I do not sit with deceitful men, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. Heavenly Father, please forgive us where we've allowed our loyalties to become blurred. Make us one-hearted people whose loyalties are undivided. Help us to love and enjoy all people, but to look only to you to lead and teach us and give us counsel. Would we be like Jesus, loving the world, but not loyal to its ways of thinking? I wash my hands in innocence and go about your altar, O Lord, proclaiming aloud your praise and telling of all your wonderful deeds. Rather, please, would we be clear in our loyalty to you, whether that's in our homes or workplaces or with friends and family. Help us to serve you in all things, to give you our affections and praise and to be bold in telling all people of all your wonderful deeds and faithfulness. Would we most especially tell of the greatest deed done at the cross by the Lord Jesus? I love the house where you live, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. Lord, stir up in each of us a deep and overflowing love for you. Would we come to love seeking you in prayer and in your word? And would we love each other well, the church in whom your glory dwells? Help us to not think just of ourselves, but to be a community that gives to each other the courage to remain loyal to you when we feel the accusations of the world. Do not take away my soul along with sinners, my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are wicked schemes, whose right hands are full of bribes. Father, we thank you that you have forgiven those who have put their trust in you and we no longer need to fear your judgment. But I lead a blameless life. Redeem me and be merciful to me. Please empower us, gracious Lord, to walk and keep walking in trust and dependence on you. We trust in you to redeem us. And we depend on you to show us mercy. My feet stand on level ground. Thank you, Father, that... If that is true of us, we have one sure and certain hope that when we face you as our judge, you will not declare us guilty, but rather not guilty. 
Help those tonight who are feeling wobbly. Give us confidence that our feet are on level ground. In the great assembly, I will praise the Lord. Finally, Father, please help us now, in light of that hope, to stand and praise you in this assembly here tonight in our final song. And let this be a small reflection of that great assembly in which we will one day stand praising you in endless and perfect song. Alleluia and amen.